welcome to Young and Sanctified. Our goal is to provide open access to expert insights that will deepen your understanding of faith and the world around us. So whether you're a curious seeker or a committed believer, this podcast is for you. We're here to help you explore the big questions and ideas that matter most and to engage with them thoughtfully and meaningfully. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, or if you enjoy it after you listen to this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share with a friend who might enjoy this as well. Together, we can build a community of young and sanctified listeners passionate about learning and growing in faith. Joining us today is Dr. Kenneth J. Collins. I'm really excited for this conversation, you guys. It was really good. A leading scholar in historical theology and Wesley studies, Dr. Collins is the director of the Wesleyan Studies Summer Seminar and the Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal Studies Center at Asbury Theological Seminary. He's clearly an expert on Wesleyan theology. He has authored many books, and we talk about a forthcoming one, maybe in the next few years, specifically on Wesleyan Christology. It's it's two chapters in his, in his upcoming book. I'm really excited to have Dr. Collins with us today to share his insights and expertise on Wesleyan Christology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Collins. Great to be here, Justin. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been really excited for this conversation, and especially, you know, since we scheduled this, something pretty interesting has happened at Asbury, where you're located. So I'm also interested just to hear a little bit about that briefly. But before we dive in just in the uh, conversation of Wesleyan Christology, can you share uh, a brief introduction of of you? Like, who are you? uh, Where are you? And what are you doing right now? Yeah, um... I am a professor uh, of historical theology and Wesley studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. Um, I work most comfortably in the area of Wesley studies. I've written a number of important books on the um, life and thought of John Wesley, John Wesley's theology. Um, I also work in the field of um, spirituality. I've written a couple of books on American evangelicalism. I like to pay attention to what's going on in American religion. Um, so those are the three major areas for me. Uh, Wesley studies, spirituality, and American evangelicalism. So, yeah. Okay. And so before we, before we dive into the main topic today, I'd love to hear what, what just happened at Asbury. I know that's, you know, there's a lot of conversation, but can you give like a, an executive summary of what just happened? Yeah, um, as you might know, uh, Asbury uh, University uh, has had a history of revivals. Um, when it was Asbury College back in 1970, there was a revival, uh, and there's been one now um, in 2023. Mm. Um, I don't think that's an accident. Mm. In other words, I think that the basic theological orientation of Wesleyanism will break out in revivals from time to time. Hmm. Um, And why do I say that? I say that because our tradition, uh, in distinguishing it from other traditions, has placed an emphasis on holiness. 
As a matter of fact, if you go into Yu's auditorium where the revival was taking place, right up the, above the pulpit is Holiness Unto the Lord, this big banner, mm. Holiness Unto the Lord. Um, and what does that mean? It means that our communities, and I say communities, Asbury University, Asbury Seminary, we are focused, of course, on the forgiveness of sins, which we refer to doctrinally as justification. Of course, I mean, that's a precious part of the good news of the gospel. But our community, in a special way, uh, is focused on, and here's the language that, that generates revivalism. We are focused on that transformation of being, transformation of being that we call holiness, whereby the Holy Spirit tabernacles in our hearts, transforms us, changes us, makes us new people. Uh, our tradition has placed a premium on the transformation of being that we call holiness and that scripture calls holiness. So I'm not surprised. I am not surprised at all. Our community is very conducive to these kinds of manifestations, this empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, um, issuing in repentance, which is so important today, repentance and being open to that transformation of being that will come about by the grace of God. Mm. Mm. You, you, what you just described, you know, the emphasis on holiness, that, that's why I remained a Wesleyan once, you know, once I decided, you know, I grew up in the Salvation Army and yes, um, strictly Wesleyan uh, tradition. That's where we come from. You know that better than I do. Um, yes, yes. But when I got to seminary, I started, you know, trying to discover what do I believe and I, and what you just described is why I landed where, you know, back on Wesleyan theology, the, the emphasis on holiness, such an, an important part of um, that tradition. So you met, already mentioned his name, and we already are referring to his theology, John Wesley. Can you, can you introduce, so yeah. for people who aren't familiar, can you introduce just generally who is he, um, and when was he, and you know, all that? Yeah, John Wesley um, was an 18th century Anglican, uh, he was born and raised and died in the Church of England. Um, he uh, was someone who, when the Methodists were first starting to coalesce uh, in 1729 at Oxford University, and that's where Methodism arises. It arises within the context of a university setting. Um, uh, they were very much concerned once again about holiness. And later on, when Wesley is talking about the very purpose of Methodism, he referred to it as to reform the nation, to reform the nation and to spread scriptural holiness across the land. Uh, and so John Wesley is someone, uh, you know, who was very much concerned about the spreading of scriptural holiness in, in the way that we were referring to earlier. Now watch this. I, I want to bring forward a little snapshot of John Wesley so your audience can get a better sense 
of his motivation, his drive, his makeup. Uh, take Wesley in his early 30s. What is he doing? He's about to undertake a, a, a rather dangerous missionary trip to Georgia because transatlantic crossings could be dicey things in the 18th century. Here he is. He's an ordained Anglican priest. He grew up in a very pious home. His father was an ordained Anglican priest. His mother was Susanna Wesley, who doted over her children to make sure that they uh, understood the Christian faith and were properly instructed therein. And it is precisely this person uh, who is saying that the reason he is going uh, to Georgia is with the hope of saving his own soul. Uh, and so that makes Wesley a very interesting character, biographically speaking, because many of his friends would simply say, of course, John Wesley, you're a Christian. You were baptized in the Anglican Church as an infant. You're a minister, you're a priest, your, your father was a priest, your brother's a priest. Of course you are a Christian. And the of courseness, that drops out for Wesley. Because what does he want? He wants to be a real, true, proper, scriptural Christian. That's all of Wesley's language. He wants to be the real deal. He doesn't want to be a nominal Christian. He wants the very substance of what Christianity has to offer. And he wants to make sure that he misses nothing. Man, that, that, that right there is just very encouraging and humbling. Yeah, you know... Can you explain? So this wasn't just emotion for him, though. You know, I'm sure some people. Oh, no, no. This was really a journey, a life journey. He was caught up in this as a person, that it was a personal journey, that he wanted to know Christ and his benefit deeply, thoroughly. Uh, he wanted to live out the Christian faith and be transformed in being like we were talked about that he might be holy and that he might love and love God and neighbor as he should. So let's move into his Christology cuz I'm sure you have a lot, I'm sure there's a lot to discuss here. So can you provide so just a starting point, can you provide an overview of John Wesley's view of Christ and maybe how they differed a little bit from other views at that time? Yeah, um let me just say one thing before I do that. That's a wonderful question, an absolutely wonderful question. Um, but I want to start out with something a little different, and it'll lead me into Wesley's view, his Christology. And, and it, it basically grows out of my contemporary awareness, my awareness today, uh, in that in 21st century context, especially when we engage in interreligious dialogue. You know, I'm thinking of dialogue between Christians and Muslims, Christians and Jews, Christians and Hindus, that sort of thing. I, I've looked at some of these discussions, and lots of times uh, the Christian faithful do not bring Christ to the table. They don't. They, they bring forward the pretense because it is a pretense, that Christ is simply human. He is not. There is a qualitative difference between Jesus Christ 
and Moses, and Muhammad, and Lao Tzu, uh, and any other religious figure. He is distinct because he is divine. Not only that, Jesus Christ is without sin and therefore is not a part of the problem. He therefore is a unique mediator. He can reconcile, and only he can reconcile, the alienation that exists between God and humanity. Moses can't do that. Jeremiah can't do that. They're a part, as great as they are, and they are great, they are still a part of the problem as sinners. And so we have to bring, once again, the uniqueness of Christ to the table. He is human, but he is not merely human. He is also divine. And we have to take that divinity always into account. We can't pretend that Christ is simply human for the sake of interreligious dialogue. We have to bring Christ in the unity of his person, both divine and human, to the table. Now that, that leads me into John Wesley, because John Wesley did exactly that. He did exactly that, uh, and Wesley's been criticized by both 18th century figures and 21st century figures for having done so. For example, uh, John Wesley was very cautious about how, what language he used to talk about Jesus. And he didn't even like to use the word dear, dear Jesus. He thought it was too familiar uh, and not, therefore, taking into account precisely who Jesus Christ is as divine. And so there's been a contemporary discussion, oh, you know, Wesley is not recognizing the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Oh, no, he is. He is, trust me, especially when we talk about the incarnation and, and the crucifixion. He is, but what he is doing, he is focusing on the unity of the person. And, and if you focus on the unity of the person of Jesus Christ, that person is divine. And that brings forth honor and respect and even awe in terms of John Wesley and his language. Was that unity distinct from his contemporary theologians at the time? Well, many uh, theologians in the 18th century would, of course, stress, at least, you know, put it on the table of the unity of the two natures of Christ. Now, whether that unity was actually fleshed out in their theologies it would be another question, and we'd have to look at their theologies in greater detail. But I mean, the basic formula, and here Wesley is following the early tradition of the church, mm -hmm. you know, the great ecumenical councils, especially the four councils um, that worked out the Christology as well as the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. And so Wesley follows those councils very carefully. Uh, two natures, both divine and human, and one person. One person in two natures. I mean, that is the historic orthodox formula. Wesley brings that forward into the 18th century, um, uh, and he underscores it in lots of ways, yeah. How did his understanding of Christ impact his overall theology and, and approach to ministry? I think Wesley has a rich sense 
that because Christ has come, in other words, the incarnation, because Christ has come, and because as the only possible mediator between God and humanity, that Christ at the cross can bring reconciliation uh, between God and humanity with the consequence that we are now able to be renewed in that blessed image in which we were created. That is the image and likeness of God. Okay. And so Wesley is talking about redemption in terms of receiving the forgiveness of sins, uh, and being renewed in our nature, uh, in terms of holiness. And it is that growth in holiness, the process of sanctification, whereby that, that precious image in which we have all been created uh, is being renewed in its beauty, in its goodness, in its splendor. Okay, And so because of what Christ has done, all of this is now, is now possible. And so this has important anthropological considerations. In other words, how do we understand a human being? Um, and for Wesley, uh, our human being is not what they do. It's not what they own. That every human being is honorable. Why? Because they have been created in that precious image, that precious image of God. Now, granted, that image has been distorted through sin, but that image remains in all people for Wesley. Uh, and it is precisely that image that is being renewed, uh, and deepened, uh, in, in the process of salvation. Yeah. So what's, can you share a little bit of the difference between like a, a reformed original sin and Wesley's view of this like distorted you know, image of God? Well, actually, you know, if you talk about a reformed understanding of original sin, let's say Calvin, for example, mm -hmm. that you'd see in Calvin's Institutes, um, uh, and then look at John Wesley's understanding of original sin, actually, there's going to be a lot of similarity here, hmm. a lot of similarity between John Calvin and John Wesley in their understanding of original sin. Uh, both go back to Augustine. Both go back to Augustine in important ways in hmm. terms of their understanding of sin and grace. Hmm. Listen to Wesley's language. You might think this is Calvin, this is John Wesley. Utterly fallen, totally corrupted. This is how Wesley is defining, you know, uh, uh, humanity in the wake of sin. You know, that inheritance, that negative inheritance that comes from Adam and Eve. You know, we can speak about the fall and then we can speak about original sin as that inheritance, which is passed, uh, you know, to the rest of humanity. And Wesley uses the language of total depravity. Hmm. That's, that's not where Calvin and Wesley will differ. They're, they're the same. They're the same on that score. Hmm. And, and they're going back to the same source, which is Augustine, which is going to make Wesleyan theology a quintessential Western theology. It is because it has an Augustinian understanding of sin and grace. Okay. Now watch this. 
I, I would imagine some in your audience, uh, because I've heard this, uh, even today when they hear whether Cal, whether it's Calvin's description of original sin or the Wesleyan one I've just defined to you, they almost have an emotional, visceral reaction against it. Hmm. You know, saying, oh, oh, come on. This is the 21st century. We don't believe that stuff anymore. But I think they're making a big mistake, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Look at this not simply negatively, but look at it positively. What is the doctrine of original sin as Wesley is articulating it? What is, he, what is it saying? Hmm. It's saying that any good, any gift, any merit that we have, it sources God. Give God the glory. What we do in sinful pride, we say, this is mine, and we separate ourselves from each other. I'm better. I have this, et cetera, et cetera. It's all foolishness. It's mm. the foolishness of sin. Every gift, every talent, every good that we have, its source is God. Give God the glory. Yes. Mm. And so it's a precious doctrine. I love it. I love Wesley's articulation of sin and grace. It's a, it's an engine to glorify God. Mm, mm. I I hear you with a visceral reaction against original yes. sin, especially with my you know I, I'm a I'm a young millennial and my peers are just rejecting that oh, yeah. doctrine oh, in de general. Like it's it's out the window. It's gone. And that's because they're not thinking uh, deeply enough theologically. They they're getting turned off at the surface. Right. And that's a danger, because right. their theology will be superficial, and we want to go deep. I know I want to go deep. I want to. I want the real deal, just mm -hmm. like John Wesley wanted the real deal. I want nothing less than real, true, proper scriptural Christianity, the kind of Christianity that turns the world upside down, as it did in the early centuries of the church. Amen. 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 Uh, yep. I'm, I'm I'm with you. I, uh, the shallow theology, yep. So, you you mentioned it earlier in the beginning: Christian perfection, Christian holiness. I'd, I'd be curious if you could share a little bit of how these intersect: Christian holiness or Christian perfection, and um, John Wesley's view of of Christ. I I think before we talk about Christian perfection or entire sanctification, which is uh, the way. Wesley often wrote about it, though he did, of course, use the language Christian perfection, to be sure. I, I think we need to talk about the new birth first. Sure. Uh, because if we don't get on the table what the new birth is in accordance with Scripture, as well as reflected in John Wesley's theology, hmm. and I really think that's what John Wesley's theology do, is doing. He's simply bringing forward what is in Scripture. Um and, and when we think of the new birth, and, and Jesus is the one who said, you know, in the dialogue with Nicodemus, we must be born again. Uh, and for Wesley, when we are born again, there's that transformation we were talking about at the head of the interview, at the head of the podcast. Mm -hmm. In other words, that transformation of being that so many people caught up in the Asbury revival were hungering for. Um, and, and in the new birth, yes, we are born of God. This is a qualitative change. 
This is not a little more of what already was. This is something new. Uh, prior to this, we were unholy, steeped in our sins, under the power and dominion of sin. Now, through the salvific, regenerating grace of God, we are set free. Mm. We are set free, as Paul wrote about, uh, you know, in, in Romans 8 and in Romans 6 very clearly. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free mm. from the law of sin and death. That is a precious promise of the gospel to be received by grace through faith, and it is when one is born of God. And so the Christian faith is not simply the forgiveness of sins. It, it, if it were simply the forgiveness of sins, if that's all we preached in a pulpit on Sunday mornings, mm -hmm. that would not be good news to those who know their chains, to those who know their bondages. Because in receiving the forgiveness of sins, without a transformation of nature, hmm. they would almost be immediately be committing the same sins for which they had just asked forgiveness in the first place. Hmm. And so the God who is merciful enough to forgive us our sins is good enough to transform our nature to make us born again so that we become holy. Uh, mm. and, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can walk in holiness. We can walk in grace through faith. Hmm. Hmm. So was there any like, like a, what is it called? Spirit Christology that like connected this understanding for, um, John Wesley at all? Like, uh, does that question make sense? Like spirit Christology? Well, oh, go ahead. Yes. I mean, none of this happens without the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, applying uh, Christ to the soul, if you will, mm. um, applying the Father's gift of Christ to the soul, transforming that soul in terms of freedom from the guilt of sin and justification, freedom from its power and dominion uh, in terms of the new birth. And so these are great changes. These are not human possibilities. They must be received as the divine works that they are mediated to us by the precious Holy Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. In other words, when we talk about conversion, if we talk about the new birth, these are not natural works. These are supernatural works because they involve the agency of the Holy Spirit. In mm -hmm. other words, we are powerless to make ourselves holy. Uh, getting a, a new degree will not do it. Setting out on a moral uh, reform program will not make us holy. Mm. Only God can make us holy, and God will make us holy when we receive Christ and his benefit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's something I really liked about Wesley's writing is his emphasis on Trinitarian involvement in his Christology, which which I thought was very unique at the time with his contemporaries. Um, oh, go ahead. And I think a piece here that's very important, and I think lots of people will hear this today, is that for Wesley, on one level, the gospel is about freedom. Hmm. 
You know, Scripture talks about wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty. There is freedom. And the children of God are free. They are free, and they have been set free uh, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Wesley took that very seriously, the mm. freedom of the gospel, that we walk in liberty because of what Christ has done and what the Spirit has done in our hearts, transforming us, uh, conforming us to the image and likeness of Christ. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of freedom, you, you know, something that one of the many reasons I, I, I've chosen Wesleyanism and to chose uh, to choose to follow Wesley's theology is how Wesley and even Catherine and William Booth they they have a clear emphasis on not just you know saving souls but caring deeply about the human right in front of us. So can you can, can you share a little bit of how Wesley's view of Christ informed his understanding of justice or advocacy um, or caring for the vulnerable? Yes. Uh, and you use the word vulnerable, which I think is a better choice. Um, I know your original question used different language. Um, and I and well aware of Wesley working among, that's how I phrase it, among the poor. And mm. Wesley loved the poor. He did. He loved the poor. Those, for example, um, who were rejected um, in 18th century British society, many simply because they were poor or unlettered or uncultured, I mean, the class system that was operated in 18th century England could be a, a genuine burden, hmm. a diminishment, a reduction to so many people. The poor respond, many of the poor responded to the gospel, and they loved Methodism. Why? Because Wesley would place them in a class meeting. And their status, if you will, in that class meeting was not dependent upon what they owned, uh, mm. their social standing or anything of that. It was dependent upon how open they were to the grace of God. And so mm. people entered into the class meetings and they became its leaders. The poor became its leaders. They had a new appreciation in that environment. And that's the way it should be. Because a Methodist class meeting recognized the glory of the image of God, the glory of the image of God that is no less in the poor than in other people. And maybe, some have argued, even more so, because they're more acquainted with humility, with lowliness and meekness, uh, these sorts of things. John Wesley loved the poor. Wesley talked about works of piety and works of mercy. And he said, and this is marvelous, he said that works of mercy, in other words, serving the poor, for example, uh, 
works of mercy were a genuine means of grace. Meaning what? Meaning that through our activities of serving the poor, clothing, housing, feeding, whatever, that that could be a suitable channel through which the further graces of God would be communicated to us. And so Wesley saw works of mercy as a genuine means of grace, just like works of piety work, like reading the Bible or prayer or Christian conference or fasting. Wesley saw works of mercy as a means of grace as well. And this means his theology is remarkably balanced. It's remarkably balanced. It's a full-orbed theology. Earlier you said class, like a Methodist class. Can you explain what that is? Class meeting. A class meeting, right, as opposed to a band meeting, which would be a smaller group, and that would be voluntary. Yeah. Wow, interesting. But you couldn't be a Methodist in the 18th century without being a part of a small group Mm -hmm. where there would be accountability and responsibility where your fellow brothers and sisters would look over your own, look over your soul, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you can see how intentional John Wesley is. So we could compare, for example, George Whitfield Mm -hmm. here and John Wesley. George Whitfield was the better preacher by far, no doubt about it. When George Whitfield Mm -hmm. came through, it was like a, a blaze of glory and so many people responded. But George Whitfield did not gather up the harvest. In other words, he moved on. And then those who had responded to his preaching in time eventually fell away. What every place Wesley went, those who responded were gathered up and they were placed in a class meeting of accountable, responsible, loving discipleship, basically. And so as the great evangelical revival was running its course in the 18th century, the Methodists had a lot, Wesley had much more fruit to show than George Whitfield did in England. Uh, and Wesley had the numbers to prove it uh, because he had gathered up the harvest. And lastly, can you share a little bit about, uh, he, he wrote a, a pamphlet against slavery, right, for, for um, Americans. Can you talk about that a little bit of like what led him to write that? Yes, and that, that simply is the love of God and neighbor that, <laughs> In this treatise on slavery, and this is very interesting, that Wesley is trying to appeal to the most general audience as possible. He doesn't even appeal to the Bible, specifically in terms of his argumentation. Mm -hmm. What he's appealing to is natural law. In other words, what it means to be a human being and what things pertain to being a human being. Hmm. How can one class of human beings enjoy such things and not allow others to do so. It's a very powerful natural law argument. And Wesley um, criticized slavery. He saw it as sin, the sin Mm -hmm. that it is. It is sinful. Um, And he excoriated against it in the treatise on, uh, in his tract on slavery, uh, and showed um, the evil of it. Hmm. Uh, slavery 
and we've been talking about this earlier, slavery stubbornly and ongoingly refuses to acknowledge the glorious image uh, of slaves, the glorious image in which they were created. Hmm. Uh, it refuses, hmm. uh, and that's its chief sin. That is not the love of neighbor. You know, I've been reading in the pages of early Methodism, early American Methodism, and early American Methodism started out well. They followed Wesley in this area. They were abolitionists. They understood the dignity of all human beings, whoever had a human face, created it in nothing less than the image and likeness of God. But then as you go into the 19th century, you start to see... And maybe there are some parallels to our 21st century, although in a different way, that the message, the goodness of the gospel gets undermined. It gets co-opted hmm. because lots of people complain uh, and they put social pressure. And so you look at what happened in 19th century Methodism and they basically, especially in the South, they caved in on this. Hmm. They let it go. They tolerated the evil of slavery, hmm. uh, and that is sinful. Hmm. It is sinful. Uh, and Wesley, if he were alive in the mid-19th century, would have called the Methodists on it. He, he, wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have tolerated it. Hmm. He, he would have thrust out of Methodism those who committed this kind of evil against their brother. How then could they say they love God and neighbor? Mm. Amen. Yeah, I, I remember reading it for the first time, and the, his his like his drawing on on the slaver's hearts. Like he he kept using that word heart in his writing, which is so yes. so interesting. Such an interesting approach of trying to humanize even the slaveholders, right? And he wasn't saying like you guys are evil or or you're going to hell. He was saying you guys have a heart. <laughs> yeah, he made an appeal to yeah. their heart, um, and. To, for them to consider and think it through in an empathetic and sympathetic way what you are actually mm. doing to look at that and not to cover it up, but to see it for what it actually is without pretense, without smoke or clouds, but to see it uh, as God would see it, as a God of holy love mm. would see it. Mm. Holy love, yeah. So... Dr. Collins, thank you so much for this conversation. What is the um, yes. forthcoming book that your chapters are in? Can I take a note of that? Yeah, um, I don't know if I want to release the title publicly oh, sure. yet. So it's something I can share with you okay. privately, but I, d I don't know because the publisher yep. may change, yep. uh, may change sure. the title. Publishers... You know, sometimes they weigh in on titles, and you got to go with the publisher. <laughs> sure, no problem. D do you know any like uh, projected date or anything yeah, that I, I can put I, in the show notes? I hope to hand in the manuscript by uh, April 2024. So yes, I am working on one final Wesley book. Let Let me just say a little bit about it, even though I haven't given you the title. Sure. Let me just tell you what the book's going to be about because I'm excited about it. Um, it, it's basically about the generosity of John Wesley's theology. 
In other words, a mm. John Wesleyan theology is a very welcoming theology. In other words, we believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that Christ died for all people, all people, and all means all. Now watch this. Mm. Wesleyan theology, because it understands that God is love, Wesley referred to love as God's darling attribute, God mm. cannot but will the redemption of all people precisely because God is love. God is good without any admixture of evil at all. Now, having said all those things, that doesn't mean all people are redeemed. Wesley's not a universalist. But mm -hmm. universal provision, provision has been made for all. God does indeed will the redemption of all people precisely because of who God is. God is love. God is good. And goodness mm. would will that glorious uh, uh, future for all people. But unfortunately, many people reject God's gracious offer of forgiveness and renewal in Jesus Christ. And that's sad. Mm. But provision has been made for all because God is good. God is merciful. God is a gift giver. God is wonderful, and I really want to showcase that, the generosity of Wesleyan theology, its welcoming nature. Would you like mm -hmm. another example of how welcoming Wesleyan theology is? Yeah, absolutely. And indistinguishing and distinguished from other theologies? Let's let's Wesleyan theology is good because it gets the basics right. Now what do I mean by that? It's able to call good good and evil, evil. And you're saying to yourself, mm. okay, now, well, what's so big about that? Hey, not every theology calls good, good. I'll give you an example. Um, take 12-step programs, for example. Um, they do a lot of good uh, in helping people get free from, let's say, alcohol addiction or sex addiction, eating addiction, whatever. There's mm. a whole, There are some traditions out there who reject and actually refer to it as the work of Satan, a uh, 12-step program, because they don't specifically mention the name of Jesus Christ. They're not oriented mm. towards Christ. Wesleyan theology can acknowledge the good that 12-step programs do and sees it as an instance of prevenient grace. In other words, this mm. is the prevenient grace of God manifested in these 12-step programs whereby these folk are getting free, and that's a good thing. Mm. And so Wesleyans can acknowledge good wherever it is found, and we could actually partner with with various people with outside, outside the church. But mm. I'm not saying just because someone got sober, okay, by the provenient grace of God that they're redeemed. They may not be. There are all sorts of people right. who have never had problems with alcohol or with drugs or with sex, and they're sinners nevertheless. And, mm -hmm. and they're, and they need to become holy. And so I know yeah. in my own theology as a Wesleyan, wherever bondages are broken, I know that God has done the work, whether that is acknowledged or not. Okay. And it is mm. Christologically mm. based, whether it is acknowledged or not. Okay. Um, 
But God is so good, so gracious, and so merciful that God breaks bondages even when God is not acknowledged, okay? And if the prevenient grace of God can do this liberating work, what can the regenerating grace of God do? That grace which makes us holy, whereby the Holy Spirit is tabernacling in our personhood, in our mind, our thoughts, our desires, our very being. Mm. Well, I am really eager to get my hands on that forthcoming book in the next few years. So just know, hey, at least you have one person stoked for it. But All thank right, you. that sounds good. Well, we now have two. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and, and just your heart. I loved, I loved listening to you just talk about... Well, thank you, Justin. I'm glad this finally got to take place. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hope this goes well. I hope this goes well. And I hope, I hope your audience, whatever form your audience will take, Get, will get a rich sense you may be missing out on something absolutely beautiful and precious. Amen. Yes. Amen. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you so much. Take care. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.